Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. And today, before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institution of our guest. Today, we have an episode for you on an extremely hot topic in orthopedic surgery and really medicine in general, and that's the topic of clinic and operating room efficiency. To help us better understand how to be more efficient as surgeons, and in particular as sports medicine and shoulder surgeons, we've brought one of the most efficient surgeons that we know, a man who needs no introduction, but we'll give you one anyway, Dr. Jeff Dugas of the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, Dr. Dugas is originally from New York and went to medical school at Duke, followed by residency at HSS, and then a sports medicine fellowship at the American Sports Medicine Institute. He's been in Alabama ever since, currently a partner at the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's the team physician for essentially every team that there is, and notably serves as medical director for USA Cheer, and he's on the National Concussion Task Force for the prevention of concussions in youth sports, and finally, he serves as the associate medical director for World Wrestling Entertainment. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So this is a hot topic for all of us, and I think it's something we all strive to be better at, and that's being efficient, you know, is doing as much as we can while maintaining good quality care, good patient care, good outcomes, and ensuring that there's minimal burnout or no burnout with the staff, all, all the things, all the rest or ingredients for a recipe for success. So right. you do this better than most, and I think our listeners would love to know how you set it up. So let's start with some of the basics. How many days a week do you have clinic and how many days a week do you have in the OR? So we all do whole day clinic and OR, which I think is a part of efficiency. And um, so I have two full days of clinic, Mondays and Wednesdays, and I have two to three full days of surgery, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. And um, my operating rooms are one, one or two floors above my office or a mile away at a surgery center that we're board owners of. Okay. Now talk to us a little bit more about full days versus half days. I, I share your opinion about full days. That's my preference, but I know a lot of docs split their time and not necessarily in the same location. So tell us a little bit about how you guys have set this up for your, your practice. So we do basically the, the partners and physicians in our practice, there's 20, 25 or 26 physicians in our practice. And 15 of them are partners, the surgeons, the, the, there are 10 non-surgical sports medicine physicians, all fellowship trained. But basically, if you pay a full share of the overhead, you have two full days of clinic in, in the main office. And that's, that means you have a morning and an afternoon, a morning and an afternoon. So basically two full days. There are some people that do some half days, but I would say 90% of the practice does does full days. And that, that creates a efficiency in that you're going to one place, you're parking in one garage, you're not spending time on the road. And you, we also don't have a mandatory, like at five o'clock, it goes dark. If you and your staff want to start at six in the morning and finish at 10 at night, you can do that. Now you may have to get somebody from the front desk or x-ray to agree to stay there if you want them to be there. But um, you know, it's, it's basically the, the phones turn on at seven 30, which means somebody from each office has to be there to answer the phones and the phones go off at 5 PM, but usually the clinics go until five 30 or six. 
And then in clinic, we're going to focus the next group of questions about clinic, and then we'll move on to the OR. In clinic, how many patients will you typically see or will you and your team typically see on a given day? So I usually see about 70 patients a day in my office. Um, now, that's split between not, not so much in my – so I have five rooms in a pod. So we do a pod system where the waiting room is out front. There's a sign-in. We use uh, kiosks, which is an efficiency thing. And there's some humans out there to help with the kiosk, but it moves, it creates a much more efficient flow. People that have to get x-rays, there's a sub waiting room for x-rays, and then they get, they either get called back from the main reading waiting room or the sub waiting room into the pods by, by our staff, by our individual staff. My staff has desks in a, in a corridor, in a room that's just for my office staff. I have four people that work just for me. And that's not in my clinic. It's not in the pod. So we kind of move into the pod kind of as a tenant for the day. And then we move back into our office space um, when I'm in the operating room and another physician uses the pod. Turns out to be Norman Waldrop. He's my roommate. So our foot and ankle stud is my roommate in the, in the pod. So he uses the pod on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I use the pod on Mondays and Wednesdays. And then... So I, we have five exam rooms, and in between each of the pods, there's a cast or a DME room, so that stuff's close by. And we have, we have nine or ten pods in the office. So um, I, I get I get about sixty to sixty. I, I get I see about sixty to sixty five people actually in the pod, and then anywhere from ten to twenty, thirty, depending on how many cases I've done. My two-week post-op visits are done on my clinic days, but they're done in the building next door in a physical therapy clinic. And and one of my fellows goes with a PA, and they do the post-op clinic because the therapist over there knows everything about what I do and knows whether these people are on track or not, which is really, to me, aside from taking their stitches out or making sure their incision's okay, that's the value of the two-week post-op visit, which... I don't necessarily need to be there for I'm right next door so I can, they can come over and see me if they need me, but it keeps me from doing the two week post-op visit where really we're not making a whole lot of decisions. And so if there's, if there are decisions to be made, if there's x-rays to be checked or there's a decision point at two weeks, then they'll see me in the office. But if it's just a wound check, stitches out, strips replaced, adjust the brace, check their PT, make sure they're on the right track. That stuff is done by the fellows in the PA in the PT clinic. Those don't come into the office. So, again, another efficiency mode. I'm seeing about 60 to 65 people a day in the office. Okay. Now, in your pod with the five rooms, does every mm-hmm. partner get access to the same five rooms when they're running a clinic? Or do you have to pay different overhead or more overhead to get more rooms? And how does that work? All of the pods have at least five rooms. Um, some of the pods have seven or eight rooms and they get split between the non-surgical physicians when they're, so we have 10 of them. Usually there's two or four of them in the main office. We have six other, um, kind of peripheral around Birmingham offices, which are one or two pods. And usually it's the non-surgical docs that populate those out on the, out on the communities around Birmingham. 
but the the surgeons are mostly in the in the downtown office. So um, everybody has access to a five pod uh, clinic space. Some people turn that fifth room into an office while they're in there, and they only use four. Uh, some people use it for a fluoro machine rather than a office exam space. But everybody has equal access to two full days of clinic space in one of those pods if you're a partner. And if you're a non-partner primary care sports physician, you have equal access to at least four exam rooms um, four and a half days a week between the downtown office and one of the peripheral offices. So nine half days. Okay. Now, with an, a clinic like this, where you're seeing 70 patients, how many helpers do you have between, you know, mm. whether it's athletic trainers or PAs or even your fellows? Yeah. Who's with you during the day? So I have two fellows, two orthopedic fellows with me every day. Um, I have um, one of my clinic days, I have a resident from UAB. A fourth year resident. The other clinic day, I have a PA who splits time between me, Lyle, and Benton Emblem. So she's kind of a sports PA. Um, and then I have four people who work for me. Two of them have master's degrees in athletic training. My, I call her my work wife, Christina. Um, she is the MVP of my world, and she is kind of my my office manager slash surgical coordinator slash mother. And I, I don't think I would ever get somewhere if I didn't have her. She is the MVP of my, of my office. And she's been with me for, I think, going on 13 or 14 years. Um, and then Gina is also a master's level ATC. So she handles all the diagnostics, communication with patients, uh, pre and post-op. She's very clinically savvy and She's out in the pod with me, so she's handling anything that kind of communication with teams, docs, trainers, you know, anything that needs to be sent. She she understands that access as an as an athletic trainer. Um, Christina, meanwhile, is doing all the surgical stuff, and then I have an appointment scheduler and a um, a medical assistant. That's a great team. So, so let me ask you, when you, um, with a list this big, with, with uh, a practice like yours, you've obviously established yourself as, you know, an international superstar. So people are <laughs> going to come to see you from all over and, um, and they're, it may not, might not even matter what's wrong with them. They just want to see you. And so there'll be patients on occasion where uh, maybe it's not something you want to see or it's not something you treat. Um, who screens your clinic? Do you have a call center for patients to call into and they take care of it? Or does your staff do it? How, how does it, that part work? So we're a little bit unique in that way. Each of us uh, in the surgery, on the surgical, on the partner front, has our own appointment scheduler. Um, we, don't do, um, we don't do centralized scheduling. So we have we each have our own. The, the non-surgical docs have a centralized scheduling office, and there are five or six people in there that 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 schedule for the non-surgical doc because there's so many of them and they're spread out everywhere. Um, the people who call, you know, if if you call and get a hold of my staff, if you call Andrew Sports Medicine, and we have a 24-hour line you can call for an appointment. 
We also have online scheduling and things like that. So if you call and request an appointment with me, and it's in the wheelhouse of what I do, my appointment scheduler is going to call, Melissa is going to call you back and schedule you an appointment. And she may request records if you've been seen before, or you've had imaging or whatever. If you haven't had those kinds, if you haven't had any kind of workup and your problem is not acute, she probably will try to get you in to see one of the non-surgical docs because they can typically get you in quicker on, on their schedule than we can. Our schedules are usually a little more booked out in advance. Um, but not always. And so my, but if the call gets to Melissa or if the, if the information gets to Melissa, she will handle it. She'll either A, get you in to see me and tell you my next available appointment is in two weeks. Or if, if that doesn't work, you, you, the, you think you tore your ACL and that needs to be addressed and you need an MRI. Hey, I'm going to get you in to see Jody Ortega and he'll, his, his people will call you and they'll probably see you tomorrow. And so the benefit of having 10 non-surgical sports medicine trained primary care docs is the answer is never no. We, we can get anybody in in a moment's notice. And that's important in a sports practice is to say yes. So we say yes to everything, whether it's me saying yes or Melissa saying yes or Melissa saying yes, I will make this happen through somebody else and we will get you an answer to the question or get you what you need. I love it. I think one of the key take homes for for our younger listeners, but probably all of our listeners in particular, is um, is saying yes and and figuring out a way to do that. But it's nice that your system supports that. I know not every orthopedic group, be it private practice, hospital based practice, even academics, uh, not not everyone shares that philosophy. And people kind of get into this is the only thing I see and. As one of my mentors would would say, Dr. Bush Joseph, he would say, uh, "Don't become the left small finger, you know, PIP surgeon yeah. and only see that stuff." Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's great. But your system is nice because it sounds like when they get to your office, they're ready for you. Is that is that pretty much accurate? They're ready for you to make a decision about surgery or no, et cetera. They are usually that's the case, but I also have situations where. You know, I'll get a call or a text from somebody or an athletic trainer will call me and say, hey, I think so-and-so just broke his wrist. He's a senior high school kid, just broke his wrist. Okay, send him in tomorrow. I'll see him tomorrow. My hand and wrist stud, Kathleen McKeon, is on the other side of – she's in another pod on the same days I'm there. Rather than going through the process of trying to get him in to see Kathleen – just come in tomorrow. I'll x-ray it and I'll walk you around the hall to her off to her pod and she'll take care of it. And and that's one of the things about a sports medicine focused practice is we all practice that way. We all have that mentality. Even if you're not a sports medicine doc, even if you're our foot and ankle doc or our spine doc or our total joint doc or whatever it is in our practice, if you're going to be part of our practice, you have to know how to say yes. And, and, if you can't say yes, you're not going to survive in our in our practice because that's what's expected. And it, it creates a mutual level of respect as well as, you know, just creating efficiency to 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 the patient because yeah, we're pretty efficient, but we are also really good at creating efficiency for the patient. Okay. So patient comes to clinic, you're seeing them, you've got a lot of patients that day. 
How are you doing your notes documentation? Are you using a scribe? What EMR do you use? And do you go home with notes to do? Um, well, I typically don't do notes. I move from one room to the next. And the fellows, the resident, the PA, they do the notes. We use a system called modernizing medicine. So in the clinic, I'm just going from one room to the next and seeing the patients, examining them. And usually they're seen by one of the fellows or the resident or PA before me. I come out of one room. They tell me about the next one. I go in there. I see the patient. I move on to the next one while they're rotating around, doing notes, getting whatever we decided to do. If we needed an MRI or they need surgery or whatever, they're they're going through that process while I move on to the next one. So I think in the utopic world of my office, they hope I never sit down. And I just keep moving from one room to the next all day until the list, until the list is done. Um, I don't do, I don't take notes home. I don't do that stuff, but I do have to review them all. And I do that on the mornings of my surgery days. So I get there 30 minutes before, you know, cut time. And I, I tell the patient, let, let the first patient go to sleep. And that's when I review notes from the prior clinic that are ready. It usually takes, you know, 24 hours to get them. But so I'm usually reviewing notes within a day or two of when they're written. And I'm going through them and, and signing off on them. Uh, that sounds nice. I mean, I, I love the idea of not doing notes and, and uh, it, it takes a great team to do that, but obviously that makes it very efficient for you as well. Um, mm -hmm. Do you do procedures in clinic, injections, ultrasound guided injections, PRP, et cetera? And if so, how does that work into your flow and does it disrupt the efficiency? So I'll do simple injections. Um, subacromial injections, knees, elbows, you know, stuff like that. I do not do PRP. I don't do, I don't know how to turn the ultrasound machine on. Um, we have 10 of those guys, 10 very gifted, talented primary care docs that are really good with ultrasound guided injections and blocks and all kinds of non-surgical modalities. And so it, it's kind of like, they don't try to do what I do and I don't try to do what they do and they're always there. So I can always get them to do it. If I need a, a an elbow UCL, if I'm worried about a UCL and I want to get a dynamic ultrasound, I just need to call one of them. They're, they're down the hall and say, Hey, can you, can you scan this kid and see if his, if his ligament's stable and it may take them an hour, but they'll get it done and I'll get the answer. All right. Well, we're, we're going to move on to the OR, but before we do, any pearls that you can share with our listeners about must-dos in clinic to maintain or improve efficiency, especially for our, our early uh, surgeons, you know, first five years in practice, and then anything you've learned perhaps the hard way that you would recommend avoiding, you know, avoiding to, um, you know, that might hurt your efficiency that you've learned not to do? Well, I, on several fronts, I would say probably the most important thing is to make sure you hire people who share your ethical and moral code for how you're going to treat people. And if you're one of those people that 
no phone call should ever go unanswered. Nobody should wait 24 hours to hear back from you. And every email should be answered in a timely way and all those kind of things. Then you, you should hire people who reflect that. Otherwise, you're going to spend your time in a lot of drama with a lot of excuses and unhappy people and a, and a carousel of employees. So the thing that makes us the less, least efficient is when we have turnover in our office. So the value of maintaining your staff and keeping them happy and valuing them, which oftentimes means paying them, rewarding them, treating them kindly, doing extra things for them, making them feel appreciated. I can't do enough of that stuff. I, I enjoy doing it. It's, it's almost like I, I think I'm, I'm good at it, but I could never be good enough at it because they're so valuable that there's almost no way I could ever repay them for all, for all that they do. So I treat my staff like gold, and that helps with efficiency and maintaining consistency as well as quality. The other thing I'll say is, um, you know, if you do it right the first time, you won't have to go back and do it again, which seems obvious. But when you're looking at notes and you're dictating notes, and obviously I'm not the one dictating them most of the time, but I have a little class with my fellows and residents as they start my service. If I have to get you to redictate something, that is a process that takes a heck of a lot more time than doing it right the first time. So we get lots of documentation, lots of scores, lots lots of intake information, you know, all these kind of things that we collect for patient report outcomes and all these things. Document, 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 document. The worst inefficiencies is when you have to try to find information that isn't findable. That's really inefficient. And so we create flows in the office for how things need to be. If there's a surgery scheduled, where is the, my surgery scheduler knows where the MRI is, which system it is, what the log on is, and that stuff gets populated into a field so that when we're in the operating room, I don't have to go searching through five systems to figure out how to log into this MRI system. And again, it's just do it right the first time, preload the system. It's got to be fun this time of the year with uh, with the new fellows, kind of teaching them all those things that the old fellows have already perfected, haven't been there the whole time. Yeah, you drop anchor the first week of August. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let, let's move on to the OR. So you've mentioned that you uh, you've mentioned that you operate two and possibly three full days a week. Tell us uh, how many cases will you do in a given day on average? How many rooms do you run and how many helpers do you have for the OR? Well, it depends on what facility I'm in and, and what time of year it is. So in the surgery center, I'm limited to a three o'clock finish time. So I can't put on, I can generally get five cases in a room and I might get two rooms so I might be flip flip-flopping back and forth, but you know, a lot of the things that we do that doesn't take that long. So if I start at six thirty and I finish at three, I can get nine or ten cases done in a day at the surgery center. At the hospital, I'm not really limited time wise. They have second shift and you know, there's there's people there. So I'm not really limited 
the time. And, you know, we've had days, the, 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 the Tuesday before Thanksgiving is usually the busiest day of the year. And, and, uh, you know, I might get 15 to 18 cases done and be there till nine or 10 at night, but I don't mind. It's, it's people that have to get their stuff done before, you know, they have four days off or something like that. And school's about out. So, you know, there's, there's just times where it's, it's busier than others. The, the fall is really busy with football. And then there's a kind of a bump in the spring as baseball gets going and, you know, the summer kind of usually is kind of slow, although this summer has been really busy. So right now it's kind of slow because the, the, the fellows are there. We're having to show them everything. They're, they're good assistants and they're always good assistants. I always tell patients, you know, I don't have to teach a fellow how to operate. You know, they already know how to operate. I have to teach them the finer points of things and how to how to become, you know, the difference between good and great. It's they were good when they left residency. They they can be great if they really focus and work on their skills. And I, I think the bigger education is in the clinic than in the OR. But you know, I, I so we we can get a lot done at different times of the year depending on the circumstance. And then who helps you in the ORs? Do you have, actually, I'm going to pause because Pete's here. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm so sorry to, to be joining midstream, but I'm so excited to have Jeff or Jeff Dubas on the podcast. He's just a perfect person to talk about this. And um, so such an expert at running his practice. I learned a ton from when I visited him. I'm so excited to have him talk about his tips. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate that. Good to, good to talk to you. So tell um, us. With yeah, how many? So who helps you? You have a fellow, I'm assuming, in in each room. Do yeah. you have a surgical mm-hmm. assist or a PA? How how does it work? So yeah, I have a fellow in each case. I have a circulating nurse. I have a scrub tech, and sometimes there's a scrub nurse depending on the case. Um, I don't typically have more than one fellow. Sometimes. I'll have two fellows in a room if it's a particularly interesting case or something, but um, the PA, Jenny, our our sports PA, she kind of moves around between all of us, but she does more of the closing, you know, stuff so we can get the fellow out and get in another room so we can get started in another case. Um, Because, you know, we we try not to overlap at all. So it's it's really efficient by having Jenny kind of move around our, our PA and just close the close the incisions and, and then we can move on. Um, I, I will also say that our staff, this is all they do. So I have the same people every day I'm in the operating room and I know them and they know me same as in the clinic. Again, there is not a value amount I could put on these people and they don't work for me. They work for the hospital or they work for the surgery center, but what what can I do for them? Can I buy them lunch? Can I take them? Can I give them gift cards? Can I support their kids' charities or schools or teams? Or what do you want? I mean, you name it, I'll do it because I value these people. And I don't have to worry about, am I going to have somebody in the OR that doesn't have a clue what I'm doing? They know exactly what I'm doing. In fact, some of these people could probably do the operation as well as I do or without even talking. I mean, I did, I do cases with some of these people, Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, Kimsey, 
uh, one of my one of the OR nurses I've worked with for a really long time. I mean, we, we don't even have to talk. She just hands me stuff, and she knows what's coming. Lori, Lori Lee, all these people that I work with on a regular basis, Lisa Stewart, and Vet Guyton. There's a whole host of them. There's two of them in in each room, and I see them, you know, two or three times a week. So it's really just the same people all the time, and I think that's a huge efficiency thing, as well as a quality metric for patient outcomes. I completely agree with with you, and that's I I noticed that when I came to visit you that so much is about the team, um, and I think that's a really when you talk about efficiency, that's a common thread that it's about you know having the same team. How did you negotiate that with the hospital? So what 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 did you need to go through with the hospital to say I want the same people every time? Because for sure there's some nursing administrators like well it's best if all the nurses can do everything and we're going to rotate people around so we have maximum flexibility like how did you get how did you accomplish that? Well, I mean basically we said if you want us to do our cases here, this is what you're going to do, and you know you either want us or you don't want us, and if you don't want us that's fine, but if you want us, this is what's best for patients. This should not be about what's best for you or for me. This should be about what's best for the patient. What's best for the patient is for the people that work in those rooms with us to be so familiar with what we do that it's second nature. That's that's what's in the patient's best interest. And, you know, they're like having another surgeon in the room, the staff. And it, they know. I mean, if something doesn't look right, they'll say, did you see that? Did that look, did that look okay to you? And, you know, it's, it's, it's like having another person in there that knows what they're looking at. <clears throat> Do patients ever ask you about if you're running multiple rooms, if the fellows do in the case, um, how you accomplish so much in a given day? How, how does that play? Because, again, there's sure. there, to do a lot in a day, you've, you've got to have help and certainly you're you're going to have patients who wonder about how it all gets done, but you also need to maintain your efficiency. Mm -hmm. So does that ever come up? <clears throat> sure. It comes up all the time. And my answer to them is the fellows are not doing your surgery. I'm doing your surgery. The fellows are helping me, but I have the best assistant money can buy. I have a trained surgeon as my assistant. I don't have a PA as my first assistant. I don't have a tech as my first assistant. I have a trained board eligible orthopedic surgeon as my assistant. So you want to talk about efficient, that's, that's as efficient as it gets. And the other thing I tell them is if you don't believe me, come watch, you can sit in the viewing room and watch if you want. So if, if you don't believe I'm doing the surgery, come watch. It'd be tough for me not to be there. So I, I love the viewing room concept. I mean, I think it's something you guys have really taken and I, it's obviously here it comes in such handy so so much in handy have you ever had difficulties with that have you had times where like there's an interrupt of complication or things aren't going well how have you handled that with the viewing room in particular i haven't had that scenario um i've had i've had things happen that you know typical things you drop an instrument um you know uh, something where the, the, you're putting an ACL graft in or something and the screw breaks or you, you can't get the plug in or, you know, whatever it is. And my, my thought is, I don't, it doesn't really bother me that somebody's watching. That's the nature of an imperfect science. 
And I actually like the fact that they get to see that and see me work through the problem to its conclusion. Because then I can explain it to them and say, well, this is what you saw. And this is why I did what I did. And this is what the outcome is. And ultimately, I have to guarantee the outcome. And I have to make that thing as good as I can. And I think that when people are watching, they can appreciate that I did what I could do to make it as good as it could be. That doesn't guarantee that the patient's going to do well. I Nobody can guarantee that. But I have more people that sit in the viewing room and watch that say, yeah, I mean, after, and my staff is in there with them or somebody's in there, they're one of the other fellows or residents talking them through what we're doing. When things aren't necessarily going as smooth as silk or there's a problem or a piece of equipment isn't working or something, that's part of the explanation and they understand it. Patients are really, and families are very understanding of that. People that are real anxious in those environments typically aren't going to want to come down there and watch anyway. So the people who want to come watch are either fascinated by it or have experience in there. And, and they're, really, they're really good about understanding this is not a, nothing is a perfect world. And so, yeah, I saw that happen and saw you work through it. And that looks, you know, everything went okay. We finished in a good place. So um, I haven't had anybody crump or thankfully die while that was happening, but um, it, it, I'm sure it could happen. Now you mentioned also in there that some someone's often with the um, the family member or whoever's whoever's viewing the surgery in the viewing room. Who who is that person for you? Like who is your who is the person in the background during your surgery days that's kind of guiding the patient's families, maybe going through post operative instructions? Who's is that a, the patient, the fellows for you? Is that someone in your staff no, who does that for you? No, I do all the post op instructions face to face with the family and the patient before they leave. Um, so I do all of that. I, I'm the one who signs all the patients and says hello to them before they go to sleep. Um, I don't, I don't have the fellows or the staff do that. Now there's nursing staff all over and same day area and recovery and all that, but I, I do all that myself. Um, but when they're in the viewing room, my Christina, my, my kind of office manager is usually in there with them. If not her, then Gina. And, and, you know, we're, we're working in one room at a time. So one of the fellows is usually in there in between when we're, we're going to do in one case in one room before we start the next one. So usually there's one or two people in there, or there may be a rep from one of the implant companies and they, they're so familiar with these things. They can sit in there and explain things. So, and that, that works out well too. And then there's always a phone. If they have a question, I always tell them, you got a question, pick up the phone and call into the room and ask. So one of the things I think our our listeners may not have is is uh, similar to or what you have in terms of the autonomy and ability to kind of direct how how this OR runs, how the staff is there, et cetera. I mean, I think the principles you talked about, take care of the people around you, value your team, show them you care and 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 respect them, all those things. Um, and you can do that often, but sometimes the system will say, like Pete was saying, the the nursing strategy will be everyone works with everyone or we rotate and this is what we do. And you may mm -hmm. not have the opportunity to to dictate that. So what advice do you have for especially those first first one to two to maybe three to four year in surgeons 
who might come from a fellowship like yours, but then get into a practice where they don't have that ability to control things. How would you advise them to, to maintain as much efficiency as they can in the OR? Well, I would say if you're not going to get consistent staff in the OR, you need somebody with you. You either need a PA who can serve as your staff or hire yourself a scrub tech, you know, and pay them to show up on your surgery days and teach them and make them your PA and, and, and add to the hospital staff and tell the hospital administration, you're going to bring your own person. If they're not going to provide somebody consistently that can do it, you're going to do it. And it's worth the money to spend on that. I, I can assure you, you will be better, faster. And then, you know, the other part of it is obviously turnover. You know, turnover is not solely a hospital function. If the floor needs to be mopped, mop the floor. If somebody needs to go get the patient, go get the patient. Don't be above being a part of the process. And that means sometimes you might have to get your hands dirty. And, and you may have to get in there and do some work and you may have to position the patient or you may have to help drape or whatever. But if it's not too much for you to do, if you're contributing to the hospital being more efficient and getting more cases done, there's probably some leverage for you to say, I'm going to stop doing that. And you're going to stop making as much money if you don't provide some resources to make this happen. I'm in there mopping the floor or I'm going to get the patient or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. I'm going to quit doing that and you're going to lose income for the hospital. You need to provide us some resources. And, you know, the, typically, you know, hospital business people respond to lost revenue potential. Gentlemen, I think that you, you've so clearly outlined, you know, the ways to be efficient in the operating room and how much it's a team thing and the consistency of the staff. You may have gotten into this a little bit earlier with Rach, but I wanted to make sure that it makes it onto the podcast um, because I thought it was one of the most important things you taught me when I visited you. And that's about building your network of referrals. So when I was mm -hmm. with you in clinic, you taught me probably the mo one of the most important things I learned, which is referral sources, which ones are good ones, which ones are bad ones. And then how do you, how do you build your network? Do you mind going? I know that's not really the topic of today's podcast. I'm hoping you can go into that for just mm -hmm. one minute. Because, like, I think you could say three sentences that will help so many surgeons here. Yeah, I, I think it boils down to what I learned from Dr. Andrews. And, and thanks for saying that, Pete. I appreciate that. Um, you know, Dr. Andrews, no matter who it was, if he got a referral from another physician, he would take the time to pick up the phone and call that physician or send a note. If he didn't get him on the phone, text him, whatever it is, and just say thank you or tell him what was going on. That's one of the most valuable things in terms of generating referrals is to communicate with the person who referred it to you. It could be an athletic trainer, it could be a physical therapist, it could be anybody. I spent a lot of time early in my practice, and I still do, going out and, and engaging physical therapists and athletic trainers. I'm speaking at UAB Physical Therapy next Friday. I'm giving a lecture to their to their third year PT class or second year PT class. I do that a couple times a year. I do it at Sanford. You know, we work regularly with the PT companies and not just us. We don't own PT. We're not in the PT business. 
That's very intentional. We're probably one of the larger practices that doesn't own its own PT. We never have. Everybody thinks we do, but we never have. I think that's important because we work with a lot of PTs, and PTs are great referral sources, but they're also vital to the outcomes of what we do. So I, I think having the PTs know that you value them, they're going to get engaged with you, and they're going to do a good job for your patients. And then obviously the schools, you know, the administration, the students, the teams, be willing to give your time to go and speak to the schools, give them something. You know, what do they need from you? Go speak to a biology class, go speak to a health sciences class, go stand on the sideline of a football game at middle school or whatever it is. You know, it's not so much what they can do for you. What can you do for them? Your, your thing will come if you provide them something of value to them. And I think it should always be us providing the service. That's what we do. We are in the service business. If we provide the service, people will reward you by sending you patients. Well, thank you for coming on um, and going through this with us. Um, again, I think it's going to be incredibly valuable for our listeners, and we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, and um, again, we this is an incredibly valuable experience for the rest of us, so I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and sharing experience. No problem. Peter and Rachel, it's great to hear your voices, and um, I appreciate you guys having me. It's an honor. So yeah. um, hope to see you guys soon. I'll echo what Pete said. We want to thank you so much. I think um, telling us about how you run your practice, clinic, office, the OR is going to be super valuable for our listeners. I certainly learned a lot, and um, and I, I'm jealous that Pete got to spend some time with you, so I might have to do that at some point. <laughs> yeah, um, and come again, down anytime. I'll say one more thing. One thing that I, I think needs to be said is we are physicians, and the vast majority of us, don't know anything about medical practice management, even if we think we do. We, one of the best decisions Lyle and I ever made was hiring Lisa Warren, our CEO. Lisa is undoubtedly one of the finest people, but also one of the real, really incredible orthopedic administrators in the country. She's been president of OrthoForum, she, we, we were in or, Andrew Sports Medicine was in Ortho Forum for like six months, and she got elected president. I mean, she's she is so impressive. But you have to have those people, and you have to pay them. They're worth every. I tell Lisa all the time, I would triple your salary if you threatened to leave. You know, that's how good of a business person I am. And we, that's not our forte. We need to be focused on treating patients, and we have to hire talented people to run the business of our world. And that doesn't mean we're not engaged with it or we're not part of a managing partner group or we're not engaged in the business side, but we don't have those skill sets at the level that people that are trained to do that stuff have. And you wanna talk about efficiency. I, I spent a lot of time early in practice thinking I knew how to run a practice, only later to find out that I didn't have a clue how to run a practice when somebody who actually knew how to run it Ran it. I, I love it. Such powerful advice. And I think, um, I, I think that hope, I mean, it certainly resonates with myself. I'm sure it resonates with Pete and, and I, I hope it does for all of our listeners. Um, it, it, it's, it's great to invest in resources like that who can help you be your best and help your patients do their best, which I think is wonderful. 
Um, that is all the time we have for this podcast. Again, thank you to Jeff so much for spending, uh, you know, close to an hour with us. And I'm sure we could go on and on about this and maybe another time we will, but that is all the time we have for today. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.